Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talked to Jenna Silber-Story, who is a senior fellow in the Social, Cultural and Constitutional Studies Department at the American Enterprise Institute, and the author, along with Benjamin Story, of Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. I talked to Jenna about the crisis of modern liberal arts education, the restlessness of young American college students, and her plans for reforming and improving American higher ed. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about this Tocqueville program that you ran at Furman and the sort of um, goals of the program, what you were doing with undergraduates there? My husband and I and the and the other uh, political theorists who founded it, Ty Tessator, um, well, we were in the particular subfield political theory in, in the political, um, originally political science, political um, politics and international affairs department. Uh-huh. Okay. Our intention there was, um, had a, we had a few intentions in starting it that kind of converged one was to get students excited about reading old books, mm-hmm. um, and we thought we could do that, of course, by teaching well, but by building an intellectual community around those mm-hmm. around those books. And as I was saying um, today at the conference, there are lots of reasons to read these books, but one of them that relates to the subject of the conference is that you actually can bring together students from really divergent backgrounds and have quite different opinions if you were just giving them a survey or asking what they thought about, you know, a particular law or who to vote for, Supreme Court decision, you can really get them talking in a deep way that builds a kind of friendship around a shared activity. Mm -hmm. If you divert them from those questions and talk about related things, but really different in a different context, Mm -hmm. right? Was Penelope right to wait for Odysseus? You know, something like this. Okay, like this is not a Republican-Democrat split here, right? And yet it's a question about marriage and things like this that you can eventually um, use to reflect on things that are of, you know, immediate importance to you today. So we wanted to, um, you know, enrich the students' understanding of philosophy, of political philosophy, of the traditions um, that have built our country, but also give them the chance to talk to people in a really meaningful way for different backgrounds. And so how did it go? That seems to me like a heavy lift. It sounds like a lot of reading for the students, a lot, a lot of work potentially, reading pretty dense texts. Did they like it and was it successful? It was successful. I think there's a certain sector section of Furman students that, that don't mind work anyway, right? And don't always come in thinking what they want to do is read old texts, but they're kind of diligent, right? And you made the move to AEI to, I presume, become more involved in policy debates. And I've read a lot of things that you've been publishing recently over the last year or two, several of which have a quite specific critique of American higher ed, which is that it doesn't sort of teach students to think about what they want to do with their lives. Tell me more about that critique. First of all, we we did move to the American Enterprise Institute first just um, temporarily on a sabbatical. And the initial motivation, besides taking a sabbatical year, was to see something of the political world, particularly alongside of our old friend Yuval Levin, who's the director of Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies, which is a fairly new division within AEI. We had not thought of leaving the academy, for sure. Um, But 
we came to see that the kind of work we wanted to do um, might be better done from that perspective than from a perspective within the academy. Mm-hmm. AI is a really interesting environment. It's an institute. It's like a royal academy is what I liken it to. Mm-hmm. There is just a really exciting intellectual atmosphere where there's also just a lot of independence. And I think we always were trying to think about what we're doing from a from a broader perspective and build something that that could that could last actually even I guess I've always been interested in the question of the structure of institutions of higher education I was attentive to it from some of the first days I showed up as an undergraduate maybe um, it was your Boston interest University. in Max Weber maybe, <laughs> maybe it was. and his scholarship on bureaucracies and institutions maybe could be maybe that. your youthful fascination with Weber uh, influenced this so you asked about our... This critique. Yeah, this particular critique. Yeah, it's um, interesting. The mm-hmm. idea that higher ed should be critiqued. I mean, and interestingly enough, coming from someone from the liberal arts side to say that universities aren't doing enough to encourage and facilitate students to think more broadly about their lives and the trajectory of their lives and what the good life is and what can bring meaning to their lives because I thought that's what liberal arts colleges did. Maybe not a big public university like ASU, but I thought that's what liberal arts colleges did. I think you're right that people care about it, so that's why the critique kind of resonated, because Mm -hmm. people think this is what we're supposed to be doing. Although there is another conception of liberal education that is just, um, I mean, the most sort of common but superficial understanding is like liberal education means you're free to pick whatever you want, Hmm. particularly in the curriculum. Like it's a selective system. A lot of people come in... Or a lot of people just generally think liberal, it's free. That means I get to have a lot of electives or something okay. like that, right? Okay. So there's there's different conceptions of, of what it is. And I think um, part, of, um, part of what we're saying is that the understanding that we have of, of freedom sometimes is not actually helpful to, um, to assist students in guiding their lives. Hmm. The particular um, way we got into that problem was thinking about situation and let me back up and say Furman was really into mentoring, right? So they really encouraged professors to be um, diligent mentors. So we spent a lot of time with students that was incentivized. And we were surprised to find that some of our students who seemed like most together and were succeeding at everything and um, were like doing everything the college told them to do would have a lot of meltdowns. You know, in the end, it was like, wait a minute, if we're supposed to, if we're giving them instruction on what to do so that they then can be prepared to think well about their lives, but they have to make some big decisions when they leave, they should be better off. Also, in graduation, they would have sort of crises of confidence or not knowing what to do with themselves. That's what you mean by meltdown. Toward the end. Yeah. Mm. So sometime in senior year, typically, right? And um, in particular, what we noticed was that these students usually came in with kind of like you know, a couple options, like we're in political science, so like law school, right. maybe PhD, right. you know, like, all right, this is not a like an, a lifetime, a life crisis, right? You know, like, we're going to figure this out over four years. But as they went on, they were just, they not only had like more options on the table, which might be a good thing, you have a narrow conception of what's out there or whatever when you come in, but they didn't seem able to think them through. That's why they're having the meltdown, like they're just not thinking clear able to think carefully about it, we realized that a lot of what our institution, hardly unique, was instructing them to do was um, dabble a bit in everything, not only academically, but extracurricularly, run all over the world, 
you know, just be really busy. <laughs> yes, that's and, something that I've noticed about American students. The busyness level is crazy. I mean, some of the students that I talk to, the amount of credits that they're taking and things, it just makes my head spin. I don't know how they do it all. Yeah. Um, they really do seem extremely busy. Massive contrast to the students in Tübingen, by the way. The Ger- German undergraduate students, they have a ton of free time. But that's a that conversation true. for another time. That is true. And I, you know, I mean, it's a while ago, so it might not be comparing apples to apples, but I just didn't see the same kinds of problems of anxiety and meltdowns there. They have a different problem, which is that people take forever to finish their degrees. Yeah. Please tell me more about this sort of, I guess, realization that a lot of even the most able students were unable to really think long-term about the trajectory of their lives when they came to graduate. Yeah, so, you know, we were we were trying to, we thought about, like, what are we implicitly telling them about what's a worthwhile life by telling them to, as we finally put it, dabble in all these things and be consequently so busy and unable, particularly, I mean, you become overly busy when you're unable to discriminate between what is more worth doing and less, right? You just... Students would say to me, like, I don't know how I can prioritize, you know, chemistry and choir. And I'm like, or I'm sorry, but both. Excuse me. Students would say, I don't know how I can prioritize both chemistry and choir, for example. And it's like, priority means one is first. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to put one above the other. Yeah. Which is it going to be? Right. How do you think about, and how do you think, you know, how do you think about it is what one of the things we should be teaching them as they have four years to think, you know, before they have to make these choices in a more consequential way anyway. So we uh, reached out toward Alexis de Tocqueville and his analysis of American restlessness Uh and um, realized that he came to this view not only because he was just like a genius observer, but he had read um, a whole conversation about restlessness in French thought. We thought we would take readers through that so they could meditate on this this question and was this, of restlessness. This, and is this how you came to name your program the Tocqueville program is because of this uh, realization that Tocqueville mm. had also identified this restlessness or is that completely That's a different? Nice, yeah, nice thought. But no, we did that before. Okay. I mean, we okay. had both written about Tocqueville. We'd both been right. writing about Tocqueville for a while. So he's okay. someone we've always found, you know, insightful. So in a certain way, actually sort of makes sense because we put his name on the program in part because we wanted to give you know, contemporary American students insight into what it meant to be an American, what it meant to be part of the modern world. And we just think he's one of the best observers and analysts. So one of the things that Tocqueville points out is that Americans are busy because they are unwilling to prioritize. They're unwilling to say that one thing is worth more than another. Um and therefore, they that plus other sociological factors makes them run around uh, after a lot of the intermediate goods, like money, for example, things that can be exchanged in when we finally think about it and decide what's what's really worth it, right? Um, and this quest continually for temporal goods, as if they would provide eternal happiness, Tocqueville says, is a cause of American restlessness. Yeah, and we find there's many things in the university that agitate against the idea that we can actually say something is more worthy than another thing to do, right? Um, or even to think about it, like, what would it mean? <laughs> what does it mean to be to sing? What does it mean to be a chemist? You know, like, how is that going to shape my life? You know, what's good in that activity? What kind of virtues will it bring out? Um, we felt like that kind of analysis should be part of um, what's going on. 
So how did you or how do you help students to think about these issues more productively, I guess? Is it about somehow you said then that you have to think, you know, not about just the activity of singing in choir and the activity of doing chemistry, but thinking about yourself as a singer and a chemist. Is that part of it is to actually think about these roles almost as professions when even when you're studying them and to take them more seriously to think about what they would be like if you kept doing them after graduation or what are some of the things that you do to help students think in a more productive way about these issues i can say a number of things that i think are going to be elements of this this picture one is that something we found in the activity of mentoring Furman students that one of the most productive questions to ask to get them to think in this way is to ask them who is it that you want to become? What are the, you might say, character traits um, that you want to inhabit, that, that you, wanna, you, want, you, you want to conform your life to, in a sense, right? So a lot of the, there's a lot of pressure on what do you want to become? Is it going to be a doctor? Is it going to be a professor? You know, that kind of thing. In a certain sense, that's, I think, not as important as saying what kind of character traits you want to cultivate. Mm-hmm. Now, those might then cause you to make a decision about, say, a profession, because certain professions ask you to cultivate, you know, humility or empathy, particularly well, or like listening to other people, you know, like there are certain aspects of human medicine where you can go and and do that and other aspects where you wouldn't be doing that so much. But I think it's been very clarifying for students to to think about things that way, and, and particularly in conjunction with reading just wonderful analyses of that you get in a great books curriculum. So just to take one Aristotle's Ethics, which I, I taught a semester-long course, gives us a moral vocabulary that is not often available to us now. So he just names things that I think were relevant then and are relevant now, like what courage, moderation, magnanimity, liberality, giving things, you know, being generous, basically, um, being witty. You know, he encourages us to think, is that, wow, is that a virtue? Is that something I should cultivate? Is that important? He's one example of someone that gives us a much richer vocabulary to talk about what it is we're aiming to be with our character than we often get in, particularly in a world where we're, we're anxious about talking about this. So if I talk about courage, like that is, again, not a politically charged virtue. In some way, everyone wants to be courageous, might look differently, you know, in their in your different lives. But I think sometimes when we get overly anxious about being morally deterministic or something like that, we impoverish our vocabulary for talking about these things. So my kids, when they were in elementary school in in a public school system, they had instead of, you know, a discussion of virtues or moral habits, they had something called healthy habits, healthy habits for kids or something Mm -hmm. like that. And those were things like seek the win-win, uh-huh. You know, compromise. Yeah, it was a lot. It was actually a lot about compromising, you know, in a certain um, comprom- compromising has its place and is good. But like who, you know, the, the sense of like, who are you and how are you to understand what you're striving to be didn't seem to be as much part of it. I have a few more thoughts or questions about this. The first thing that occurs to me is the crisis in humanities uh, training and um, hiring in American higher ed. I mean, some of the numbers around the academic job market in the humanities, i.e. for the sorts of people that would be able to have the skills and the training to teach the sort of classes that you're talking about, people in classics or in, you know, early modern literature or whatever these fields are, 
I mean, we're talking a handful of jobs in the entire United States every year. That might pose a risk to the sort of agenda or reforms that you advocate is that we might simply be moving into a world where the sorts of people with those skills to teach those sorts of classes just might not exist anymore. Do you worry about that? Yes. There's a lot of forces at work in this in this question, uh, in, in this phenomenon that you're talking about. But I do think that if you can speak of the utility of a liberal arts education in a way that is authentic to what you know, many people that got into this field see as like real academic life and also intelligible to people that are not academics, parents and trustees and things, then you have the hope that, you know, people will see the the real need for this, right? So we wrote an article in the New York Times that that you may have read because it talks about this subject. And we were surprised to find that it it was extremely popular. First of all, it was the most emailed piece. We got Particular, we got a lot of letters about it, but particularly from college administrators. Uh-huh. And they said, this is exactly what I need to explain to people why what we're doing is valuable for the ordinary person, someone who's not going to become an academic. Yeah, and it seems like uh, what you just said addresses my second question, which is kind of, is this really just something for humanities students? Or is it for something for engineering students or pre-med students or architect students or business students um, who might come to university with a very actually specific career path in mind, right? Because that is also a difference between the liberal arts and a lot of, I mean, a big university like ASU, most people, I would say, come here with some sort of a career track in mind, actually. But it sounds to me like you think that those people could benefit from these types of engaging with these types of questions, too. I think so. Um, a lot of the students actually in the Tocqueville program were not in political science or not even in the humanities. We had a lot of people coming over from, you know, chemistry, biology, math. Okay. Um, and they would come take classes with us as, you know, part of the general education requirements. But they'd often stick around you know, beyond that and come to these groups and stuff. Yeah. So they, they found this meaningful uh, to them. And I think it wasn't for them. Yeah. They didn't have the professional question that I was, that was portraying, but you know, they have, uh, there's, everybody has a sort of character question, right? So you want to become a doctor maybe because you just love thinking about biology and how, you know, disease works or something like this. But um, then as you get into that profession, it becomes, you know, not just a a sort of intellectual fascination, but a daily lived reality. You have to think about how the work you're doing is is shaping you. And like, you know, do you do you like who you're becoming? Right. How can you think about cultivating yourself so that you can be um, sort of admiring of your own character, right? Another thing that I read in one of your pieces, which I found quite interesting, was this idea that students, they sense this kind of lack of uh, core to this liberal education in a way. And the way that you've described, many of them come out of university still feeling kind of unmoored or without a sense of direction or the sense they have the sense of restlessness, as you call it. But something that you pointed out uh, in one of your pieces was that Several students that you know, or many students that you know, have ended up making a turn to sort of pre-modern political thought and uh, traditionalism and things like this. Could you talk a little bit more about that? That's something that I wasn't expecting to get from from your uh, essays, and that really jumped out at me as being quite intriguing. 
we wrote that piece as a response to an, the other kinds of questions we were getting after writing the Why We Are Restless in this uh-huh. book. And the particular questions there were if the conception, if ref- restlessness, which we had portrayed as a particularly modern problem, or we more accurately, we were saying there is a modern form of restlessness that we're suffering from. And uh, they, some people said, well, are you suggesting that we try to return in some way uh-huh. to pre-modern customs, right? We wanted to articulate that, no, we're not. And that's kind of why we ended with Tocqueville, someone that looked at his time. And I think we are saying with Tocqueville that you, you don't just think your time is the best and, and, you know, sort of denigrate the past. Tocqueville was a French aristocrat who grew up among aristocrats who were at that time, shortly after the French Revolution, naturally sympathetic to a return to the old regime. We realized that Tocqueville really was a model for how to appreciate what was best in the past and even what was lost and try to translate what's essential about that into the present context. So, you know, instead of, you know, going with his counter-revolutionary friends and family members, he actually made a tremendous effort to appreciate democracy, what he called democracy, which he said was the future, the present and the future, right? Despite the revolution having swept away his family and friends' wealth and privilege, he still believed in a sort of a progressive vision, quite remarkable, really. Yeah, so he thought, you know, he's pretty clear in the book, this is not out of a personal affinity, But then he says, no, this is, you know, he calls it providential. This is, in a certain way, part of God's plan. Now, Tocqueville himself wasn't actually deeply religious, so this is a, he was raised Catholic, but lost his faith upon reading Voltaire when he was a young man. So when he uses these terms, he doesn't mean necessarily literally that he's accepting it because he thinks it's foreordained by God, but it is as if, I think, it's a a providential fact because this is the moment we live in, right? And the the task is to use our understanding of the past to enrich our present decisions. And you would make the same argument to students today who might be making some sort of a turn towards pre-modern ideas, which in the piece you even suggest might be quite common, which I found kind of interesting because I've never come across students that do that. (laughs) But I don't teach political theories, so I mean, maybe that's the reason. But that's the advice you would give to students today is to live in the current moment. Don't try and turn back the clock to some sort of pre-modern critique of modernity. There is a sense among students to, let me attach it to something actually that maybe students here have read so I can maybe get your reaction that uh, Patrick Deneen's Why Liberalism Failed. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure if you read that with students or, I mean, you're not, not, me, not in your field, right? Political but theory, yeah. if you've heard, you know, they, I think many people in my department would have heard students talking about that because it was a a very popular book in general, but particularly with young people, I think the sense that like, wait a minute, our culture is, as he calls it, an anti-culture. Mm-hmm. I, I think Deneen goes way too far. I mean, he, he's he's accurate in some of the critiques he's making, but he basically does promote the view that we're arguing against. It's it's interesting because he considers his book a Tocquevillian book too. He, he told me personally, this is just Tocqueville, right? In some ways it is. It's Tocqueville's negative analysis of what's going on, his warnings about what might happen to democracy and American democracy. But it doesn't take a Tocquevillian perspective. It's not written in a Tocquevillian spirit, which is like, okay, let's recognize what what is going on and let's be honest about that. But then let's live in the moment and try to use our understanding not to reject it, but to 
I think what Tocqueville's doing is what I think is the wisest course. Find out what is good and try to build on that, cultivate that. Well, maybe to conclude, what your plans are at AEI, obviously, so you're working on a book which seems to be not necessarily policy-related but directed at educators, people and working in higher ed. So maybe you could tell me a little bit more about that and maybe more about your other initiatives that you're working on at, at AEI and what your... I guess what your path is for trying to get these ideas out there and have more um, of an influence on the sector. So the the book is, uh, you're, you're correct, it's not exactly directly policy. There is an ed, ed, ed team, an education team at AEI that does a lot of really great work on policy, and my husband and I sit in on a lot of their things. But we're in the social, cultural, and constitutional studies division, and that's a kind of broad name, one of these, you know, sort of, as, as you pointed out, these entrepreneurial things. Um and in that division, there's lots of room to talk about things like the culture of, of the university. And, and this goes on in the ed team somewhat as well. But really, it's to explain that we are not primarily focused on policy questions that they do already deal extremely well with, like student loans and things like that. But we're really focused on the question of what is the, uh, what, what's the best understanding of liberal education for our moment. Great. Very interesting. I look forward to learning more. As that goes on, I'm going to conclude by asking you a question, um, which I ask all of our guests, which is, if you had to recommend to our listeners a book or a podcast or a film or anything else to um, read or engage with on the topic of civil discourse and debate, what would it be? Well, my favorite book about it is Aristotle's Politics. That's not a bedtime read, but um, <laughs> if you have the opportunity to read that, I'll talk about that for a minute, and maybe I'll think of another one, too. I think what is so refreshing, illuminating, relieving about the conception of political life that Aristotle introduces there is that it always involves uh, two groups that don't dis- don't agree. Jeremy Waldron, who's a legal theorist, contemporary legal theorist, said, look, politics depends on two things. One, we have to do something in common. We just, we have to do something, right? And two, we have divergent opinions about what it is and how to do it. And I think that it's so interesting um, for students that's extremely relieving because more and more they think that our country has, is full of people who have nothing in common. And that, you know, they say increasingly, and this is not just from the right at all, like we, maybe we need homogeneity to, to like keep going. And then you read Aristotle's politics with them and you see, now, this is a condition of political life, actually. And Aristotle does just a beautiful job of saying, look, there's, in his view, there's there's always, like, the elites and the people. And you can actually think about the claims they make, which are made in a kind of brutish way a lot of the times at first. But you can refine those claims. You can kind of philosophize about those claims. And you can see that, actually, they both have something that makes sense, and they have both something to contribute to a community. Um, that's a kind of simple way of putting it, but it's a great exercise um, to go through. Well, that's excellent. I think that's an excellent suggestion. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jenna, for being on the podcast. Thank you. This this has been really fun. 